Hello and welcome. Today I am joined by Dr. Jonathan Hansen. Jonathan, thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. No problem. So Jonathan is a consultant in sport and exercise medicine. And as we're going to go through, he's had a vast array of experience in things. So your LinkedIn profile, there's a, there's, there's a lot of things that we can go through today. So I'm looking forward to having a chat about it. Yeah, that's uh, also could be said that I'm just old. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll go with my version. I think it's, uh, it's better. <laughs> um, so, Jonathan, whereabouts are you from originally? Um, yeah, so originally I'm from, from Barnsley in South Yorkshire. Um, so a poignant day um, for Barnsley with Michael Parkinson's passing yesterday. Um, um, and I, I grew up in, in Yorkshire, um, went to school in that area. And then that's when I left to come to Scotland for uni um, when I was 18 to come to Aberdeen. And I've pretty much been in Scotland ever since. Um, apart from the odd little job back in the north or overseas, but pretty much an honorary Scot. Right. So what made you want to go to get into medicine in the first place? And then also why Aberdeen? Yeah, well, the Aberdeen's easy. Um, it's where I got an offer. <laughs> uh, although I did have um, some family who um, were um, from Aberdeen or worked and lived in Aberdeen. So we'd been there a few times when I was younger um although i'm from um you know barnsley's quite an industrial ex-coal mining town but there's countryside all around it and i'm definitely a rural person so pulled to sort of the rurality of the mountains anyway um but it was the only place i got an offer for medicine um my my sort of interest in, in medicine comes from uh when i was a youngster um i've kind of combined sport and medicine the emergency medicine since i was about 12 years old um i swimming was sports when I was younger the swimming club I was at had a life-saving club so I was doing CPR and and AED and all that sort of stuff when I was a teenager um got a job as a pool lifeguard so I was doing sport and emergency medicine in some form even before I started medical school um and then when um at school I was I was definitely interested in the sciences but I was more biology and chemistry rather than maths and physics um and it was just a bit of a natural progression, really, to um, do medicine um, more through. I'm I'm good at biology and chemistry, and I like working with people. Um, the kind of sport thing, it was there, but I probably didn't discover it, and because it wasn't really a thing anyway to have a career in sport and medicine. Um, you know, back in the late '80s, early '90s, um, un until I got a bit further on. Right. And so, how was your time in Aberdeen? Yeah, it was great. I mean, looking back, I was I was um, it's a bit crazy because I I played a few sports. I, I was never a natural athlete in terms of um, track and field and all that sort of stuff and anything you could measure on me from a sports science perspective. But I was fairly switched on about what I could do and what I couldn't do at sports. So I played two or three sports to um a reasonable level i played district age group rugby um i played school first team cricket for three years um district basketball at school um but without i mean if you see my park run now honestly you'll realize i'm definitely not an athlete anybody who watches me running it's comedy um but whilst i was in aberdeen i was still playing rugby in yorkshire which looking back was a ridiculous thing to do um but the plus side to that was so I basically did minimal training during the week, what I could do myself and then would come down at the weekend and play for the club in Yorkshire that, I, that I'd played for all the way through. Um, but the plus side to that was I got to see my parents a lot, despite living six hours away from from where they were. Um, and I got to be involved in a in a reasonable level, sort of national league, lower, lower national league level of um, rugby union which was was great but i'm at that window now when my son's 18 and about to go to uni and thankfully he's only going to edinburgh uni so he'll only be an hour away from where i live um but i've got that feeling of what did i put my parents through by moving six hours away uh 30 years ago <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah so and then so how often would you make the trip down down pretty much during the rugby season every every weekend crazy crazy yeah a lot of time on the train 
um, and probably missed out on a lot of things at uni actually through um, you know, swings and roundabouts. I, I gained a lot through my sport um, and then um, equally missed out on a on a few things as well. But I suppose from um, from a sports medicine side, I was lucky in that, like a lot of medical students do, I did an intercalated BSc um, halfway through the, the medicine degree. Um, and Aberdeen, although for the rest of the UK, it probably seems a bit out there and a bit on the edge, but Aberdeen was one of the first um, hubs where MRI was used clinically um, and would say it was you know, one of the, the leaders in Europe for developing MRI. And one of the radiologists there, a chap called um, Frank Smith, um, who's dead now, unfortunately, he um, he was also a team doctor at Montrose Football Club. So whilst I was doing my BSc, he was my supervisor. My, my uh, BSc was looking at tibial plateau geometry using MR to try and determine who would do well without an operation after an ACL rupture. Um, and Frank was my supervisor from a radiology perspective. My supervisor from um, a clinical perspective was a chap called Nick Mafuli, Nicola Mafuli, who's obviously in London now, but he was a registrar in Aberdeen. He did his orthopaedic training up there. Um, so, you know, looking back, um, it's easy looking back, but you know, these, these two guys that I was working with when I was a medical student are actually fairly big hitters in terms of the development of MRI. And obviously Nick Mafuli has gone on to um, do an awful lot of research around tendinopathy and Achilles type stuff. Um, and obviously a big, big figure in London now. Um, but the, the interesting thing there was that was my first taste of sports medicine because Frank took me to um, to a game at Montrose, um, Montrose against Inverness Califis, so I remember it well. Um, and that was a radiologist who would go into the changing room in his suit, of course, because in those days the docs sat in the director's box in their suit. Um, but he was examining patients, examining players with the physios. Um, so that was actually opened my eyes to, well, whatever whatever you go into, you can always have breadth and you can always stay you know, general as a role as a generalist. So although I was doing a lot of my sport away, actually that BSc year probably built on my that kind of interest that was bubbling away, that kind of sport, sport and resource type thing that I that I'd had since I was a teenager. So again, I still didn't realise it because sports medicine wasn't a career in the mid 90s, certainly not in Scotland and certainly not in the north of Scotland. Um, so then it was all about just you know, getting on to getting on to working as a doctor. So did you so have, did any, you have any other aspects beyond, beyond being a doctor? Being a doctor? Um, oh yeah. I mean, again, from um, yeah, the late 90s was the time when all the sort of videos started coming out on British Lions tour, British and Irish Lions tours and living with the Lions and all that sort of stuff became a bit more high profile. Excuse me. So, so I was aware of people like um, James Robson, Dr. James Robson at Scottish Rugby Union, who yeah, is probably the, one of, if not the most influential person in um, my professional life. But I was aware of him as British and Irish Lions doctor. It is possible to do these sort of things, but only very few people get there. And, you know, how what would that look like? How would it be possible? But it certainly was never an aspiration. It was just, oh, that's interesting. Medicine's put together. That's a bit like I was just doing. Mm. Yeah. So what was your involvement? Did you have anything with James at that point? No, not at all. Um, after um, on graduation, it suddenly became it was fine traveling down to Yorkshire when I was a medical student, but it wasn't fine as soon as I started working as a junior doctor. That, that became impossible. So um, I made a decision fairly quickly about a year in that I was going to stop trying to play. Um, you know, rugby seriously although it was only in lower national league and i was going to play socially um and at that point just focus on ticking the boxes that i needed to do to um excuse me to advance professionally um so i only really met james robson um in about 2003 um so a good sort of five years of excuse me, a good five years of doing regular med medical jobs. I did go to Australia for um, for six months for Brisbane, for a year, sorry, for Brisbane um, as, a, as an SHO around the turn of the millennium. But it's only when I came back from that and I was starting work um, in Glasgow 
and um, once my rugby career had kind of petered out that I actually thought right I want to have a go at this sports medicine lark and I contacted the Glasgow Warriors doctor at the time who was a chap called Jerry Haggerty um, in about 2002-2003 and he let me shadow him for four or five games and then said to me well we've got a Glasgow under 16 team um, they only play four or five games a year it's a representative team uh, played with the districts in Scotland do you fancy doing that and I'll mentor you um, which was great so it's only one I'd done that with Jerry for a couple of years and Glasgow 16s under 18s the Scotland under 21 rugby job came up um, and Jerry said to me actually I'm going to recommend you for this under 21 job would you be interested and I said yes so it was only then at about 2003 that I was introduced to, to James Robson um, and then he kind of well took me under his wing a bit and uh, mentored me and um, gave me the tools if you like and so where were you living at this point and like what what were the jobs that you were doing as your day job yeah um i missed this little bit out um at the time of the, i was started looking at glasgow there was um there was a position advertised for the world university games um with great britain in a junior sports physician role um so i applied for that and managed to get it in south korea for the world university games and there again i met a whole host of practitioners mostly who were not from scotland um so the likes of um uh simon till um in sheffield mark gillette um and um yeah a lot of just uh, nikki cambero um and there the conversation became actually you know sports medicine could become a career if we get the london 2012 olympics um and I was sort of thinking, all right, could it could it be a career? I'm not sure it'd be a career in Scotland. So I definitely was, <clears throat> excuse me, tuning jobs, choosing jobs on professional jobs, uh, day jobs on what I enjoyed more than what I wanted to do. So I moved between a few jobs between emergency medicine, general medicine, <clears throat> excuse me, cardiothoracic surgery, SHO jobs, just waiting to see what um, what was going to happen with sports medicine training. Um, and then once I was doing Scotland under 21s, completely randomly, I was at the stage in my hospital career where I couldn't tread water anymore. If I was going to stay in the city in Glasgow, I would have to kick on and choose a career. I, I knew general practice wasn't for me, that emergency medicine style um, background through my life-saving club was very prominent in, in my sort of interest and like a lot of people who work in emergency medicine I've got a very short attention span um so completely random and this is where it sounds absolutely crazy but um my wife and I are both rural people and there was a job advertised on the Isle of Skye um working in a rural hospital there as a complete rural generalist that whatever happens you have to deal with it from a hospital perspective and I'd looked at this job a few times because it kind of pushed my professional buttons of having to deal with whatever's in front of you um, and say we're rural people. So the rurality, um, it's a beautiful part of the world. And I needed something that would give me two or three years until sports medicine training became available. So we went to Sky, um, which um, we went for two or three years. We had our children there. Um, my, my kids are Gaelic speakers. They went to Gaelic school, the traditional language in Scotland. Um, and actually, I fell into the best job in the NHS um, in terms of complete generalist skills. Whatever happened, and we had some you know, crazy interesting and some horrible things happen in the community that we had to deal with. Um, so from my professional development, I was getting a lot out of that. In that we were well supported for CPD. Um, that that mantra of you don't quite have the same resources that you have in the city, but you've got to cope with anything and everything that happens. They were ideal skills for traveling with teams, as I saw it, because um, that's what happens, isn't it? You know, when you go away with a team, especially if you're overseas, anything can happen, and you need that flexibility in your thinking to be able to cope with it. So we ended up staying on Sky for 12 years, which wasn't. Um, wasn't the plan initially although i did take a sabbatical halfway through 
to um, to complete my top up training in sports medicine in Newcastle and Belfast, um, and um, yeah. So so when I by the time I finished on Sky, I was on the specialist register for for uh, sport and exercise medicine, and I was I was on the GP register as well because just a quirk of the Sky job they they um, gave me the tools to give me a finishing ticket, which was a good safety net for me because in Scotland. It's it's not like the south of England in terms of formal pathways in sports medicine, um, so I had a good safety net um, via having those two qualifications. Right, right. Amazing, amazing. Just um, the the sense of community that happens in in the the villages and the towns, um, that thing of knowing multiple generations of of families. Um, you know, socially, um, it's it's almost an idyll, really, you know, just of what life should be like and what, and what could be like. Um, my drive to work, you know, sometimes I would stop on the drive to work in the morning just to take in the views and remind myself how lucky I was. You know, just the the smell of the air, how clean it was, the crazy things like um, one Christmas, we um, you can imagine there's no light pollution in in some of the villages. We came home one evening from wherever we'd been and walking up to the steps it's pitch black and i hear this rustling what's that that's a bit strange get a bit closer and there's two lobsters in a plastic bag left on our doorstep and they were hand dived by the postman <laughs> who does that for everyone at christmas <laughs> um just just little things like that um and my kids had a great rock pool childhood bilingual childhood um <clears throat> so my kids are almost grown up now but they've got friends for life from sky we've got friends for life um the population in the winter is relatively small perhaps twenty-five thousand. we were two hours away from the nearest district general hospital um the team is very tight we back each other up you know support each other but in the summer there'll be two hundred and fifty thousand people come through sky um because it's such a beautiful place um and the majority of them would come to climb mountains in flip-flops um, and, and I've been flippant but you know what I mean um, you know they would get caught out by the conditions or or whatever so there was quite actually or they would be overseas tourists who would be on narrow single track roads looking at the mountains forget which side of the road we drive on so actually it was a really busy job um, especially in the summer um, and the other great thing about it was they completely supported me in my sports medicine thing so because we did 12-hour shifts um, I could easily create a week, 10 days to disappear, to go and do some sport, um, do some sports medicine. Um, and through, during that time, I did um, stuff for British athletics with world mountain running. Um, I did the holding camp for the Beijing Olympics um, with Team GB. I did all the Scotland under 21 rugby, Scotland A rugby. Um, but the thing I found as I got a little bit older um, into my 40s, it was great flying back to edinburgh airport from a trip abroad at um 10 o'clock at night but then of course i've got a five-hour drive home to get to sky um and that ultimately was not going to get any easier so that was our kind of decision it's time to leave sky and it's time to um move back to the central belt between glasgow and edinburgh where we live now and so what so will you move Apologies, just muted myself. That was always the challenge because um, sports medicine was not as developed um, in Scotland as perhaps in other parts of, or not as many opportunities as down south. And we, we wanted to stay in Scotland. Um, and thankfully, there was a job at the Institute of Sport, the Scottish Institute of Sport, um, advertised for um, a part-time sports medicine role, uh, sports medicine doctor role. Uh, with Niall Elliott um, and I applied for that and got it. So we moved to Stirling or near Stirling uh, and I commuted a little bit um, part time on Sky, part time in Stirling until I managed to get an emergency medicine job at a, an NHS hospital in, in Fife. And again, I've, I've been so lucky with the people I've worked with. Um, I don't know about your professional life, but yeah, the somebody said to me just this week you know that the quality of the relationships and the people you work with 
uh, are everything in in sports medicine and in in medicine in in work, um, and and that's probably one of the huge things I've learned from. I know you've you've interviewed James Robson, but you know James Robson's biggest and lots of other people I've worked with, but James in particular's biggest selling point is he's a good person, and he values people and treats people like human beings no matter what's happening. Um, and obviously in performance sports, sometimes you can hear stories how that's people feel the stress more than remember the values. Um, but every job I've done, I've been so lucky in that um, you know the the values have managed to shine through in the teams that I've worked with, and I've, I'm very lucky. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it's they're very they're involved. involved. Like even or whatever else is going on. So how long were you at SIS for then? Still there. So I'm still there, yeah. Um, though um, I'm just doing, I've reduced my hours significantly to accommodate um, a role in Formula One this year with Hintza. Um But I'm, I'm still there um, with the Institute and that's been six years now. I went from being half time to just doing one clinic a week for them. Um, just again, just um, one of the things about sports medicine in Scotland, because we don't have a formal training scheme, and we used to have, but unfortunately it folded, although we're trying to do something about that now. Um, so the next generation, you know, we've got a responsibility. You know, I was taken on by the likes of Jerry Haggerty, James Robson, um, and, and many others. Um, we've got a responsibility to develop the next generation. So there's a little bit of trying not to leave people high and dry and trying to mentor the next generation coming through, which, which we are doing both through uh, the Warriors and Glasgow Warriors and through the Institute. And then I saw that you used to work at the FA as well. Yeah, so um, <laughs> my, so, so again, I said I met Mark Gillette um, at the World University Games and in my early career Mark Gillette was another um, great ally and one of Mark's big projects was the Remo course, um, the first UK based sort of pitch side emergency course that everybody would recognise as standard now <clears throat> and many people on that course myself included then went on to write their own courses for different sports so Andy Smith um, and um, Simon Kemp at the RFU, myself. Um, and so through that, I wrote a course called Scrum Caps for Scottish Rugby, Scottish Rugby Union, Medical Cardiac and Pitch Side Skills, a Pitch Side Trauma course, like everybody would be familiar with. Um, but the, the thing about the, the Scrum Caps, we quite early on got a high profile incident, which I can talk about, um, where Tom Evans, um, the Scotland winger, um, just get it, broke his neck on field during a um, Six Nations match against Wales and on pitch was paralysed. Um, but again, through the skills um, that all the courses teach, um, his casual, the way he was handled, the way he was managed from the immediately when the incident happened right through to when he got to hospital, he actually didn't have any cord damage when everything was sorted out in terms of reducing his fracture um so you know tom exceptionally lucky but it was our kind of fabrice mwamba instant if you like for scrum caps um and similarly because i i knew mark i worked with mark at another world university games in 2007 mark took the fa area sorry the area course which was the the course that superseded remo he wrote it for the premier league um in the late noughties um and then mark wanted to um give it up so he recommended me to the fa to take it on for the fa um so that's what we did um, rather than the premier league we had the fa because as soon as we started doing that literally within weeks with the m beasley the um fabrice moamba incident happened um, which suddenly meant that the course exploded from being Premiership first teams to Premier League first teams to all 92 clubs, um, yeah, which suddenly became massive and clearly needed a lot more than um, an interested sports doctor on Sky could provide. Um, so, so it rapidly grew. We put other people in. But that was where my relationship with the FA 
started um, and again through being prominent in Scottish rugby around um, immediate care and, and trying to lobby world rugby to take immediate care on got involved in some of the concussion stuff um, and so my FA involvement team wise was in um, ooh, 20 I want to say 2017 I think yeah 2017 um, where out of the blue I got a call um, saying that there were going to be some a new team being set up medical team being set up for the senior men with England um, and one of the things they really wanted to look at was around head injury and the immediate care stuff about the non-technical stuff the communication type stuff and would I be interested in being involved in that so obviously <laughs> when you get that sort of call it's it's not a, a it's not a difficult decision I said yes absolutely and again so lucky um great environment great people um you know S Steve Kemp Rob Chack um Bryce Kavanagh um Ben Rosenblatt, you know, uh, Carl Todd, Carl Todd, what a, what a guy. Um, great people and had a great experience that I stayed with the senior men's team for a, basically a qualifying cycle for the Russia World Cup, went to the Russia World Cup with them and then did a year afterwards with the the Nations League when they um, got to the semis of the Nations League. Um, and then just it's just a natural thing that my bit of the project came to an end um and then moved on from that but it was again just another a bit like the f1 stuff just another random experience you, you sometimes feel like driving home from sky you sort of sit there and think how did that happen what am i doing here <laughs> and it was the same with same with the uh, the fa job with the england senior men's job again that that stands out i've done some amazing stuff um, i would have said the world mountain running was one of my best event best things i've done just because the the athletes are beasts and the scenery is brilliant, but they're not famous athletes. You know, they're the people that have the 32 minute to 10k, not the 31 minute. So they're never going to be high profile, but they're beasts. But that England men's campaign at the World Cup in Russia blows away everything else I've done. It's been crazy, and you know that's I've done a few Olympics. It's, that which have been amazing as well, but that, that that England senior men's experience in Russia and getting to a World Cup semi-final, coming from from my perspective, from a standing start, blows everything away that I've done. So, in what way, particularly, obviously the the results were were amazing. <clears throat> the tournament itself was unbelievable. That that summer was amazing. But like, what was it in particular that was so incredible? Yeah, I mean, I've I've mentioned um, <clears throat> people and values. You know, I mean. Gareth Southgate, you know, completely authentic. How he comes across on the TV—that's how he deals with everyone. Um, that set the tone. The people I was working with, I had no perception. I'd never worked in a high-value sport like that before, um, so I didn't know what to expect. And yes, there are high-value aspects of it, you know, charter flights out and and things like that. But as soon as you strip away that. Yeah, the players were all great. They were all decent people. Um, the staff were all decent people. G going to a place like Russia, you know, when, when would you get, especially in the current climate, obviously, it's not, you're not going to, but just how many people get to go to a, World, a football World Cup to the later stages? You know, in the UK, there are not many. Um, how many people get to go on a sports tour to Russia? Not many. Um, you know, just the... The performance angle as well, you know, just the, the level of detail professionally that people have thought about things um, and things that I learnt professionally um, to take away elsewhere. And and hopefully a feeling that I contributed a bit as well, you know, with some of my stuff around the uh, non-technical stuff and the communication and uh, how to minimise error in medical decision making and, <clears throat> excuse me, trying to introduce a... Uh, an on-field concussion assessment, trying to standardise an on-field concussion assessment for football, um, you know, just to try and make it less of a of a random process. Um, so hopefully, I, you know, well, hopefully they feel I had some influence with them as well. Yeah, I no, saw sort of the weekends that uh, saw Matt Konopinski put something out that the um, one of the Tottenham players had had an incident and the, the manager was very supportive of it. So where do you think we're at in terms of concussion in? in football and well in, in in sport in general yeah um 
I mean, you know, each sport is different. Um, one of the other roles I've got is I'm the, the chair of the government advisory group for Scotland for sports concussion. Every sport is different and in a different place and probably has has different different challenges. Um, I think if yeah, rugby is obviously getting um, gets a lot of airtime and a lot of attention um, about head injury. And, and I would say with my emergency medicine hat on, you know, we the majority of the head injuries that we see are not related to sport. You know, we see loads of head injuries, but they're all alcohol falls, violence. So I think it's important we don't get completely pigeonholed about sport and concussion because there's a lot of young people being bashed over the head on a Friday night as well. Um, but rugby gets a lot of um, airtime about its approach to head injury. But what one of the things which has definitely um, made a big difference, speaking as a practitioner who has to actually assess these players and make a decision in rugby, um, is the off-field assessment. Um, having the chance to remove someone to a quiet environment, get them to calm down and actually do some form of evidence-based assessment, even if we know that concussion could take up to 72 hours to appear, symptoms of concussion, having that chance to take them off field. I know when I go on to a rugby player and I'm looking at an ankle injury or knee injury, um, you know, there is pressure, there is time pressure to, to you only get a brief functional assessment um, and you are sort of watching them afterwards. Um, to, to have that in football where you can't do the off-field assessment yet. I mean, that's got to be the next step that football looks at. Um, can they, you know, can they find a way to accept that they need to do an off-field assessment? Would be better for the player than an on-field assessment. Um, you you get the the comments there by the the Tottenham manager, obviously who came from came from Scotland, so maybe some Scottish medics had some influence on him. <laughs> um, the um, yeah, which is obviously a breath of fresh air, you know, to hear someone saying that. That doesn't happen very often, but it does show that the direction of change is happening. Um, and hopefully that comments like that and instances like that are game breakers where other people will follow. But, you know, I, I get it. It's high, that level of high performance sport. You know, these decisions, these decisions that coaches are trying to make around players are difficult and important for results. But the messaging is really easy. You know, the messaging that we give to our players are if, if you've got a concussion, how can you be an effective team player in a team sport when your decision making is reduced and you won't appreciate it? So it's just about persisting with that education, persisting with that change management and getting people to accept that. You know, they're, they're not going to um, players and coaches are not going to accept um, you know, if you have two head injuries together. Um, you know, you might get this really rare complication called second impact syndrome, which could be fatal. Yeah, you know, because again, 21-year-olds think they're invincible, but they might listen to actually you're not going to be effective to your team. Uh, your performance might suffer, and you may not get selected in future weeks because the coach you know, doesn't rate your performance, or you're seven times more likely to get a musculoskeletal injury if you continue when you concussed. You know, at grassroots level, if that's somebody who's a painter and decorator and they pull a hamstring or if that's somebody anybody who pulls a hamstring you know that's a nuisance it's a few weeks but you know if you rupture your ACL um then you're looking at you know probably nine months out of the sport so um it's definitely a journey different sports are at different stages um but comments like that in football are, are, are really refreshing and showing that um you know we're going in the right direction I think I think the biggest thing that came in while I was working in both sports football and rugby was the the video mechanism the video reviews um although as soon as you add complexity in technology you add complexity in decision making so you've got to try and put non-technical processes in to simplify the process and not get too involved in overcomplicating it but just having video review because you you know you like everybody knows if you're working in sport you're sitting pitch side you are not you're looking at something that's 50 meters away once in real time you might just turn to speak to the person next to you you might take a drink you might look at your shoelace and you've missed it and yet around the world um there are multiple tv replays who can show that 50 times before you've seen it again once if you work in pitch side so some some great advances in football and 
and uh, people like Andy Massey at FIFA, um, you know, really, it's um, helping drive change um, and, and a welcome addition to, um, you know, this kind of uh, process of pushing things further on with the video and the um, hopefully get towards a position of off-field assessment for them at some point. Yeah, yeah, very good. And then you mentioned about the Olympics then. <laughs> Talk to me about your experiences with that. Yeah. Um, so again, I did um, World University Games 2003 um, as a junior, World University Games in Thailand in 2007 <clears throat> as um as a kind of a middle middle doctor in HQ. And then I you, you've always got to when these opportunities come up, you've just got to just throw your hand in the ring and see what happens. And in 2008 for Beijing, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I applied. Um, I did not think that I was on Sky at this time. I did not think that a doctor from Sky um, who's done a couple of World University Games and was not a GP was not a specialist, was kind of a doctor in training, but working in a weird job on Sky. I did not think I would get to go to the Olympic Games. So I was mainly putting an application in, hoping that by the time London came round, I would be in a good position. Uh, although I was part of the, um, um, I, yeah, I was known to some, some of the people already. And I, knew, I knew some familiar people who subsequently did get on. So I applied for Beijing and i was interviewed and my pitch for the interview was all about the holding camp was you know generalist skills like i've said generalist skills whatever happens i can cope with anything that comes on i can be a good filter i can be a good buffer um and randomly they they liked it um so i was there um but you know the the people who were in the olympic village were you know some of the big hitters um in in sports medicine in the UK, so the likes of Rod Jake, Charlotte Cowie, Pippa Bennett, they were all um, in the in Beijing, and I was in Macau. I'd never heard of Macau before I went, but obviously, if you I don't know if you've been to Macau, or familiar with it, but it's it's the Las Vegas of the Far East. So, um, so I was in a casino town, um, in a in a beautiful um, hotel, working with Olympic athletes. Three days after I've been working on the Isle of Skye. <laughs> so yeah, strange, strange world. Um, and then, so when um, London 2012 came around, I had a brilliant experience in, in Macau, um, wanted to do some more. When London 2012 came around, I wasn't eligible to apply um, because they made the rules that you had to be part of the Institute Network um, to, to get a job in 2012. Um, so that was fine. And then when Rio came around in 2016, um, I was just I just got on to the Institute job. And we just moved away from Sky to come down here. Um, and then James Moore was involved. Um, and again, my my sort of pitch there was um, yeah, I'd done a lot of the mountain running stuff to remote and rural. I'd done a lot of long haul travel with sport to the World Junior Games through across Beijing, Thailand. Um, and again, so my pitch was my emergency medicine experience as my immediate care experience, my uh, global travel, my generalizable skills, and, and they liked it. So um, I was on as one of the HQ doctors, but the way Rio was set up, it was all in campuses, if that's a word, plural for campus. Um, and um, I was given the Deodoro campus to look after, which basically, fits with the remote and rural sky model of in Deodoro there was the equestrian there was the um, BMX um, you know, so there's basically potential for big emergency medicine style trauma injuries but slightly out of the way from the rest of the village that sky thing of being comfortable being able to cope with whatever whatever happened um, did it and again same same thing you know that the people and the values make everything um i had a, a great experience and and again learned a lot and worked with some new practitioners i've not worked with before um and then um yeah definitely wanted to have a crack at tokyo when that came around that gave me three more years in the institute setup um to become embedded in that so i was probably less of a 
um, outlier in terms of my skill mix and experience for working within the Institute network and getting to um, an Olympic Games. So I did the Gold Coast Commonwealth for Scotland in between um, and then the um, Tokyo Olympics, um, which obviously was delayed for a year by um, by COVID. Um, and then I did this, the same spectrum of um, applying my skill mix, which is the emergency medicine stuff for the horses and the bikes principally. Um, but again, in that role, one of the key things that gets you in the room and the key things you have to do is whatever happens, you've got to do it. You've got to, you know, whether that's helping shift bags, move um, ice baths, whatever it is, you've just got to have that, that um, you know, that, that outlook of one team, we're doing it. So that is quite interesting. I never really thought about that before. But when you're going for these, you're applying for a role in, in like an Olympic Games, for example, what is it an actual application form? What is the process? Yeah, I mean, the, the Olympic roles are advertised um, just on like like any other job. Um, Olympic and Paralympic roles are all just an open advert um, on the usual you know, UK sport um, websites, BOA websites, government websites, um, you know, faculty websites, just a straightforward open application. Um, and in the past, they've been application form CV interview. Um, more recently, they've moved to um, a bit more sort of psychological input. So group interviews and seeing how you interact as a team. Because um, obviously the the skills that they need is, you know, you're in a pressure cooker for four to six weeks, you can be a long way from home. Um, some interesting things can happen. And by, by that, I mean, you know, you need, um, you, you know, it's not things happen where you can't sort of say, oh, we need, um, we'll take two weeks off and we'll come back next week and we'll build you up again. We'll just deload, reload and see what happens. You know, you've got situations where people are trying to compete. So, you know, you've got to find, um, obviously legal, but novel solutions within, um, within science and medicine and, and just sport about how can we minimize the impact of this problem to make sure this person competes effectively. So they, so that's what they do. They get people working together and see how they interact and how they, they solve problems um, more than the traditional, well, recently that's how it's been rather than the traditional sort of interview type, um, panel interview type role. And who have you been interviewed by in, in those? Um, well, Ian McCurdy was was um, who was the chief medical officer for the Beijing Olympics um, back in the day, um, and then I've had interviews with um, Charlotte Cowie, Greg Retta, Niall Elliott. Um, they all sort of sit on the panels. James Moore um, around the Rio cycle. Um, usually science and medicine practitioners um, or the um, performance staff of the BOA or or the organisation that you're applying for. I've had head coaches, I've had um, physios interview me, I've had all, all sorts of people. Mm. Oh, yeah, interesting. And then how's the F1 role come up? Yeah, um, it's funny, isn't it? Again, like I say, just strange things happen. I so through the scrum cap stuff um, and as I mentioned I've got a bit of a short attention span you know I'm great at conceptualizing product projects getting them running but I'm never going to run something for 20 years I just haven't got the attention span for that um, I get distracted to other things um, and through the scrum caps work where we were training and the FA stuff and the area course we were training people to do basic airway manoeuvres, log rolls, CPR, um, all that sort of carry on. Um, and that was fine. But yeah, it ran its course for me. Um, that that led that that type of training. And in emergency medicine, as I became more senior in hospital medicine, a lot of the focus there is about error minimization. You know, we, we know we know what to do, but as soon as you throw a group of people together in a stressful moment, how can you guarantee that they are going to do the correct thing and not just deteriorate into chaos? And that's all this ergonomics and human factors 
type stuff, you know, about how do humans interact to get the best outcome and where do errors occur. So I developed my interest, then moved to that, and I started bringing that into Scrum Caps and the area course. And it's it's really simple stuff. Like, you know, we can teach people how to um, use pieces of plastic and airways on people's faces or how to use a defibrillator. But that's completely pointless if when you go to use the bag that you've got, all your equipment's out of date or things are missing or somebody's opened it and not replaced it. So it's just systems-based stuff of packing, bag checks, minimising work, you know, locking the bags after you've checked them and labelling them as checked just so that you know it's there when you need it. That one time a year you're going to need it. You know that the battery's in date and everything's going to be there, as well as the simple stuff about how we interact. So on field, um, and again, I'm coming to answer your question, I promise, but on field with rugby, yeah, we, we certainly at Glasgow Warriors, we try and do a two-person rescue to every instant. One person assesses, the other person watches the assessment and communicates what's happening to the coaches so they can get a substitute. But the language around that, and this all comes from helicopters and again, working on Sky, working with the helicopter docks. Three-point messaging, you know, there's no point going, I'm with, num I'm with Johnny, number six, he's pulled his hamstring, we're just testing strength and range, you know, that, that is pointless, that's going to get lost in noise, people are going to be thinking about something else. But if you come in and go, Fred Bloggs, hamstring, red, you know, basically using a red, amber, green system, three-point messaging, uh, make it simple, everybody knows where they stand, there's a lot, lot, no chatter, no noise on the radio. So that's that human factors and ergonomics. Um, that we tried to bring into um, other sports that I've been working in. And through my interest in that, I was looking at other sports of, you know, what, what do you do about accuracy of decision-making and precision in decision-making? Because working pitch side in team sports, there's an expectation that you'll be 100% accurate in every decision you make, but you're making a brief on the run functional assessment with a large audience and a large TV audience sometimes. Um, so what can you do to stack the odds in your favour? And motorsport was a sport that I tried to approach a few times through teams, uh, individual teams, um, to try and find um, you know, what they do about accuracy and precision, because obviously from the outside, it's got an image of being incredibly precise and incredibly marginal, marginally gains uh, orientated. Um, and I didn't really get anywhere um, in terms of having a meaty conversation with anyone, but it was always on my radar. And then randomly, um, the company that I um, now work for, Hintzer Performance, um, had an advert out for um, doctors to work in motorsport. So I I phoned them up and I, and I asked them about this job, but yeah, but I was really i was asking about wanting to learn more about motorsport in terms of precision and accuracy and what they do um and through the very early on they said they were looking for a doctor to do every single race in f1 um to support the existing doctor who'd be doing it for many years um, and hintzer are a company that um started by a finnish orthopedic surgeon called aki hintzer who was mika hakkinen's doctor um, but just through his presence in the paddock, ended up treating multiple other drivers just on a, well, I'm I'm a physician. Physicians help people in difficulty. They've asked me, I'm going to help them. Um, so Hintz's origins are all in F1 and motorsport. Um, and just through, when they said they wanted a doctor to do all 24 race, I said, well, that's not me. You know, I'm, I'm always going to be a portfolio doctor. Um, I want to do my emergency medicine as well as my sports medicine. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of thought that was going to be the end of it. But then conversations continued and, and the head doctor um, said he was going to move on, actually. Um, just he'd done it for a long time and just fancied moving on, which suddenly changed the, the landscape in terms of what they were looking for. Um, we had quite a few conversations about what I thought and they thought about what modern sports medicine practitioners could bring and what they they decided they needed and wanted and ultimately after lots of conversations trying to exp me trying to explore precision and accuracy um and talking around what a job plan would look like ultimately they offered me the job to do half the races um looking after their pool of clients which are um 
you know, F1 teams and um, F1 drivers, um, which would which fitted into what I was currently doing across my portfolio. And um, obviously the, the pluses for me is a bit like the Football World Cup, completely novel experience. You know, where did this come from? Um, it's one of those, I always say to my kids, you just got to say yes sometimes and then worry about how you're going to do it afterwards. Um, it seemed to broadly fit into what I was going to do. So said yes, and I'm now uh, eight months in as the senior medical officer for INSA for the F1 programme. We look after some F2 and F3 drivers as well. Um, and uh, I'm, yeah, but I keep saying all the time, I say every conversation what I have about F1, um, well, not to the patients, obviously, but to, uh, to anyone in the system is, but I'm still a novice. <laughs> I'm still learning, which is true. Um, I'm definitely learning about the sport and um, which has been great. I, you know, like, like everyone, I love learning uh, and I love um, working with people who think differently than I do. So especially, I'm, I've just turned 50, so that's definitely where my outlook is, is about now, about experiencing different groups of people and, and different worlds. No, it sounds really exciting. And I, them as a company, they look a really interesting company. And so what what was the process like with them? I know that you it was circumstantial to some extent, but like, was it, do they talk about their own internal culture and what they look for in a, in a human rather than just from a, a medical side? Yeah, I mean, um, so Hinson now, they've got a, a large um, corporate aspect to them um, in terms of coaching. And they, they're basically a performance coaching company, a, a performance um, orientated um, organization. So values, um, they're a Scandinavian company as well, So and which is really interesting, having never worked with Scandinavian population before. But, you know, values, being a good person, um looking after yourself um on a high performance level in whatever background you are whether it's sport or business um is what they do and and what they you know what they um what they speak about um they run high performance coaching courses um to try and develop practitioners along their way of thinking um but the the mainstay of what hints do in sport is they provide the performance coaches for the drivers um, and the teams, but the drivers in particular. So, you know, performance coach would be, again, a, a fairly broadly trained but highly specialised practitioner who's got experience in sports science, strength and conditioning, maybe some therapy background in terms of physio, um, and would coordinate the conditioning and nutrition programme. Um, you know, not quite on a residential basis, but, you know, work spending a lot of time with the drivers in a one-on-one -on -one relationship. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I wouldn't, you know, hopefully you feel from the previous um, previous conversations, I would not have come into it um, just for the novelty if it, if it wasn't some potential for working with great people and feeling like I would learn a lot. Um, and yeah, the people I work with directly with, from, that I've been involved with at Hinsa from the CEO down through performance director, um, you know, Pete McKnight, Andy Harrison, uh, Andy Costas. Um, yeah, just great people, great values, um, easy to work with, to problem solve and um, and easy to learn from. And what is it in particular then about that organisation? I know sometimes it is difficult to articulate. I mean, do they have their own actual values listed or is it what is it that you find so good to work in? Yeah, so so again because because part of my life is as an a and e doctor so i i deal with a lot of people who have difficult problems in my medical my hospital medical life and in my sport life things are a lot easier and a lot more pleasant if you've got people who understand and don't overreact to um the patient um and the situation and um, my so hints to have this mantra what they call the core which comes from a book that anti wrote which is about this it's like a performance lifestyle way of living and way of working and looking after yourself um to get the best out of yourself and be in control of your life but actually 
the people I work with that I've listed, the way they respond to ups and downs of trying to, and a, yeah, the way they respond to working together rather than ups and downs of trying to run a global medical service for elite level performers um, with lots of good innovation and insight, um, very little drama, um, good problem solving approach and and equally um, able to um, enjoy it, you know, to, uh, smile, um, not be afraid to have to crack a joke, have a laugh, you know, um, be just be comfortable with each other. Um, so it's that relationships with the people that I work with, um, which I find most refreshing, especially because I am a novice and so I'm going to make mistakes um, in this in this world. Um, and yeah, just the, the way they've tried to support me um, has been brilliant. Mm, yeah, no, it's great. Isn't it? It's great to be working in an environment where you genuinely feel excited and motivated and driven to to, to, to do great things and, and be supported in that way as well. Yep, yep, very lucky. Yeah, no, it's great. And then in terms of getting into this area then, so you've you've had a number of different experiences. What would your advice be to people that are looking to get into sports medicine or, or any 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 area really? <clears throat> yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm lucky in that I mentor two or three younger doctors or a couple of, yeah, two younger doctors um, to try and help them um, kick on. And, you know, the... I suppose the sort of things I would say, certainly from a doctor perspective, you need to get a postgraduate qualification. Um, and there are a load of MSCs out there. There are a load of different qualifications. They're all great. But if you really want to get <clears throat> you know, on in sports medicine, the qualification to get is the is the membership of the faculty, uh, because that is regarded as the gold standard qualification. Um, not that the MSCs are not worthless they're not they're really valuable but if somebody was at the bottom saying which route should i take i would point them towards the membership exam um you've got to shadow you've got to be prepared i, I get so many messages um and i'm sure everybody does from people students wanting to do electives or wanting to come and work you know at the warriors or at the institute and this and the other and that is great we could do that all the time but actually where you need to be getting your experience is in club sport lower level sport um just just because that's what yeah you that's not saying we wouldn't take them on we would but you know that's the base of where you need to get your shadowing experience um and once you've got a qualification you can get insured um and then you can start doing um you know, start applying for paid roles and, and thinking about that. Um, but you, you've just got to have an attitude of, I'm just going to say yes to this, and then I'm going to find um, find um, a way to make it, to make it happen. You know, one one of the people I work with, um, Victoria Campbell, who, um, you know, she's um, she's just been in uh, Trinidad and Tobago with the, for the Youth Commonwealth Games with Scotland. Um, they choose some terrible places for the Youth Commonwealth um and she's the the lead doctor for scotland women's rugby yeah again even i go sometimes how do you fit all this in <laughs> but again because she's just great at, at saying yes to everything because she knows there'll be value in it um in terms of learning and experience and and now we're at the point even though i'm a bit older than her you know i might not realize it but i i kind of learn from her experiences as well just hearing her talk about it and thinking oh yeah i remember oh, that's interesting how they did that yeah so there's, there's lots of life and learning experiences but you've got to get qualified and you've got to get the base of your pyramid um, and you've got to be flexible you don't have to go and do higher specialist training in sports medicine to to get on in sports medicine but you do need a relevant base specialty um which gp is probably the most flexible um but equally, emergency medicine at the moment, you know, it's it's a buyer's market because it's not necessarily a desirable specialty to people to go in. But there are a handful of people at GB Ajayi in London 
who's very similar to me, emergency medicine and sports medicine, um, Steve Boyce in Glasgow. Um, so they're the sort of things that are, that are relevant that I would push people towards. Great, brilliant. No, no, thank you for sharing that and thanks for sharing all the stories. Are you um, doing part run tomorrow? I will definitely be doing part run tomorrow. It's the uh, one consistent bit of uh, personal uh, exercise I can get to do. So I'll be shuffling and wheezing my way around that 5K course. <laughs> no, it's it's great. It's, I've only got into it in the last year or so. My fiance is really into it. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be going to do it. But we go to one. It's yeah, about 300 people in pretty much every week. So John Rogers does it and does well. Uh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> is that ex-international runner, John Rogers? <laughs> yeah, no, no, well, no, yeah, but he's, yeah, see, see him going around a lot. But Tom Lancashire does it sometimes. I don't know if you know Tom. I don't know uh, about who he is. But, yeah. yeah, so he's he's beaten Mo Farah over certain distances. So he's he's a good yeah. mate, man, and he's, um, but yeah, and I don't like seeing his time. Yeah, Andy Butcher just turned up at one of the Edinburgh ones a few weeks ago and broke the national record. <laughs> <laughs> I'll not be threatening him. <laughs> Brilliant. No, well, good luck with that. And I really appreciate your time. Thanks for thanks for speaking with me. Brilliant. Thanks for your time. Really enjoyed it. Brilliant. Thanks, Jonathan.